0: You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Let's continue in our worship. Now we do go to God's uh, spoken word, and we're continuing after we took a few weeks off kind of talking about God's uh, vision for our church and what we were walking into with two services. Uh, Now we go back to the Gospel of John. We've been in all year and much of last year as well, and and we start a new, a new mini-series, Exalting Jesus. And this is where we see within uh, go- the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus lifted high uh, as a sacrifice for us, uh, uh, fitting for this Lent season as we prepare for Easter, and even set our hearts on longing for his uh, coming and his forgiveness of sins and his sacrifice for us. So we're going to John chapter 12 today, starting in verse 20. Please follow along with me. is God's word. Uh, we come to this pivotal point in the life of Jesus, in the story that uh, the Apostle John is telling for all of his readers. And in verse 23, we see this phrase that indicates the arrival of something that has been anticipated it is the arrival of something that's only been foreshadowed and hinted at and talked about in verse 23 jesus says the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified and even as early as chapter 2 the first miracle recorded in in scripture by jesus at the wedding of cana he was at a party there was a great celebration they run out of wine his disciples and mother come to him and asking him for help, and he says, "My hour has not yet come." And at this point, you're hearing this and you're thinking, "What does that even mean? It doesn't make sense." And the the readers of John's gospel wouldn't understand that kind of saying. And at this point, it, it, it was just confusing. And John is letting us know, "Pay attention to this. Pay attention to what he is saying. It's going to come up later." And he weaves this throughout his narrative story. It's a foreshadow, a hint. And now in this passage, we see Jesus proclaiming, now is the time, the hour has come. To say it another way, he is saying, it is time. It is time to do what I have come to do. Consider situations in your life where you might hear that phrase or even say something like that. To say, it is time, which sets clarity and conviction. It's a dramatic pronouncement sometimes in joyous occasions, sometimes in really grievous occasions. You're, behind, you're, you're backstage behind, before a wedding or something, and the wedding planner or the, the officiant comes out and says, it is time. It's time to go make those vows. It's time to take your bride. It is time to go to battle. It's time to take that line, to, to go forward, to be brave and to have courage. It is time to say goodbye to a loved one. You know, maybe the most dramatic of them all is when Rafiki, you know, realizes that, (laughs) you know, that, that Simba is alive. And he realizes he is alive. And what does he say? It is time. It is time for the king to take his throne, to come home. So for Jesus, he is saying this. He is saying, it is time. Time for what? Time for what? The hour, he says, the hour is referred to as this period of time that is the focal, t- the focal point of what Jesus lived for, the focal point of his life, the focal point of the very reason he was born. All of his life, all of his purpose, all of his energy, all of his ministry was aimed towards this hour. The hour is the hour of his glorification. And the next verses are an interpretation of what it means to be glorified. To be glorified is to be lifted up. To be glorified is to be exalted in honor for all to see. To glorify Jesus and for him to say, it is time for me to be glorified. He's he's saying, I will be lifted up for all to see high above everyone else. And there are two places where Jesus is lifted up in this passage. He is lifted up most literally on the cross. Lifted up on the cross for all to see and to die for the sins of the world. And secondly, he says he is lifted up in the lives of all who trust in him, exalted in their lives, lifted up as a place of honor in their lives, a place of glory, a place of esteem, high above everything else in their life. And these are the two ways that Jesus is glorified, glorified on the cross and glorified in our lives. Let's look at these two more closely. First, we see how Christ is glorified in his death on the cross. Directly after saying, it is time, he jumps into this parable. He says, it's time for my glorification, and he goes into this parable, a parable about a grain of wheat that must fall to the ground, decompose, basically die in the ground in order to sprout life, in order to live. He's talking about himself. Theologians refer to the incarnation and life of Christ as a period of humiliation for very good reason. Reflect on just a little bit of that for a minute with me. Here is where Jesus is telling us about his, the birth and the life of Christ. And remember, he is the eternal son of God, clothed in all honor and glory in heaven. The world was created by him and for him and through him. And now he comes into the world. How? He is born as a baby. He is born to a poor father and to a poor mother. He is born in a stable. He's hunted by the king at the time to be killed. As a young boy, even though he was God in the flesh, he became obedient to earthly parents who definitely, I'm sure, made mistakes many times throughout the day. And as a young man, he was, re, he was disrespected by his neighbors and, and disregarded as anything special. He was a lonely carpenter. As an adult, his friends were poor fishermen. He didn't have a house to call his own. He didn't have a steady place to live. He didn't know where his next meal was coming from. He was mocked. For hanging out with sinners, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He grew hungry, tired, and lonely. He was betrayed and abandoned. He relied on the generosity of others for food and water and shelter. He was tempted by Satan, persecuted. He was falsely accused for being a liar, a madman, demon-possessed, a drunkard, even accursed by many as being Satan himself." He was sentenced to die a sinner's death. He was crucified between two criminals who deserved to die. This is a life of humiliation. This is the God of the universe in human form. And from birth all the way to death, it was a life of suffering and humiliation. And many might look upon his life and say, what a wasted life. What a sad man. What a, these are the principles of humiliation. This is what it looks like to be a, just a sad and desperate and failure of a case. But where we see failure and weakness, Christ sees glory. He sees glory. The death of Christ on the cross was not the cherry on top of a life that was just so miserable. It wasn't the pinnacle of his humiliation. It was actually the pinnacle of his glory. It is in his death that the focus and purpose of his whole life came into perfect clarity and he knew it so much so that he would say, this is why I was born to come to this moment, to come to this place, to come to the cross just appreciate the incredible nature of this for a second with me. Isn't this incredible? When, when you see a person and you look at a person and say the phrase, which I've per, you've probably heard or said before, he or she is just living in their element right now. They are in their element. What are they doing? Something great, right? They're happy. They're celebrating. They're enjoying like everything they're good at is finally uh, coming true. And you're saying they're living in their element, And Jesus hangs on the cross and dies, and he says, this is my element. I'm living in my element as he hangs and dies for sinners. When Jesus says it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified, he's saying it's time for me to do the very thing that I came to do on this earth. It is time for me to die for sinners. He recognizes that his hour has come. But we need to see how he is wrestling with this. We need to see that it's not just like, I'm in my element, finally the time has come. He recognizes why he was born and what he came to do, but he is also recognizing this incredible tension inside of him. In verse 27, he says, now is my soul troubled. I don't want to do this. I realize that this is why I was born. I realize that this is why I came to earth. I realize that every single moment in my life, has, is now coming into focus, and it means my death. And that really, really troubles me. His soul is troubled, he says. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? You see this wrestling here. Don't you see this tension, this, this great experience of internal conflict between suffering and a commitment to faithfully obey God? We, t- we struggle with that all the time, don't we? God, I know what you've called me to do, but I don't want to. I don't really want to do that. I don't want to lay that down. I don't want to lay down my comfort. We see Christ, who is God, who has taken on human flesh, fully man, yet fully God, experiencing this conflict in his life, suffering and a commitment to faithfully walk with his father and obey him. It's a struggle that you and I face every day. It's a struggle that you and I face every day. And Jesus quickly understands what he must do. He says, what should I do? Just, should I ask God to take me away from this? But then he says, but for this purpose, I've come to this hour. And then he says, Father, glorify your name. This is uh, merely an, uh, an articulation of principle that has driven his entire life. What has driven the entire life of Jesus is pure faithfulness and obedience to his father. He says this to us in so many different ways. He says, whatever I hear from the father, I say. Whatever I see the father doing, I do. What he loves, I love. What he hates, I hate. This has been my whole life. And now I'm coming to the cross and this is terrifying. It is troubling. I'm filled with anguish and pain. My father is leading me right to this place. And so he leans into that same principle, that same faithfulness he has had his whole life, and he says, glorify your name. Here's what Jesus is saying to you and I also. He says, you and I also are born for this very purpose, to wrestle with this presence, this internal conflict of suffering and a principle of obedience and faithfully following Jesus. The parable of the grain of wheat that falls into the ground and dies so that it can bear fruit is not just about Jesus. He invites us to the very same thing. It is also a call to all who follow Jesus and desire to love Jesus and who want to be his disciples to follow him where he is going. As he sees the Father doing, he does. As we see Christ doing, we ought to do as well. And it may seem like an odd statement to say, if you, if you desire to have an ongoing life, you must die. Isn't this interesting? He says, like, if you, do, if you love your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll gain it. What a weird saying, right? It, it's true in nature. We see this true in nature all the time. If, if seed desires to bear fruit, it must die. It must go into the ground and die. So he's saying that this is what, death is not the end. Death is not the worst thing that can happen but rather death without Christ. Jane Teller was a a Danish author who wrote this book called Nothing. It's titled Nothing. It's about a teenage boy who comes to realize that life is so difficult, and since life is so difficult, that it must have no meaning at all. And uh, Jane, before Jane was an author, her job was to negotiate peace between warring countries with the United Nations. And she was uh, just enveloped by this world of conflict, this world of pain, this world of suffering for innocent, of innocent life. And she, no doubt, probably grew just cynical. And so she wrote this book about nothing, about the meaning of life is just completely worthless. And maybe her most famous quote from this book where the t- is this, where the teenage boy says this, everything begins only to end. The moment you were born, you begin to die. That's how it is with everything. I'm sure she was just a blast at birthday parties, right? (laughs) Like just (laughs) one year older, one year closer to dying, have fun, right? She fails to realize where this is so true, right? We know this like biologically, physically, we are like dying every day. The moment we are born, we, we begin to die, But she fails to realize that even though we die and all things and all people die, death is not the end. Death for Jesus is the doorway to glory. Death for Jesus was the doorway to eternal joy. And so it is for us. So it is for all who trust in him. And that is what he's saying is if you grab tightly to keep your life, And according to your agenda, the way you see it, you will lose it. You will lose everything. But if you give up your claim to your life for my sake, in order to be faithful to me, to obey me, then you will gain it. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the pattern of Christian living for all who follow him. It is through life and death and resurrection. And this is the pattern he calls us into as well. This is the second way that Christ is to be glorified. We see that he is clearly to be glorified and exalted up as he is going to his own death, but he now invites us to glorify him through our own life, death, and resurrection. Christ is glorified in the lives of all who trust in him. His parable gives all who desire to follow him a pattern for discipleship. Let's read 25 and 26 again. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it, for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Right in this passage, we see this pattern that Jesus followed of life, death, and resurrection. Life, he is describing his connection to God. He's describing his life of connection in mind, body, and soul. He is so in tune with his Father. He so connected to the love of the Father. And he lives his life on this principle of just perfect obedience and faithfulness. And we see death. Death is the denial of his own will and obeying uh, the will of God, even to the point of death. This is what it feels like for him. It feels like an internal death to deny temptation, but it also is a literal death as he literally dies. He says, not my will. He says, what should I say? Save me from this? What should I say? God, I want what I want, even if it's not what you want. How could I do that? Why would I disobey my father who loves me? But instead, I surrender my will to your will. That's what he's saying. He says, not my will, but your will. He says, father, glorify your name. Be exalted in my life. And the resurrection, he says, the father will honor us with new life, with new emotions, with new desires, with new minds, and with a new eternal destiny for all who follow him. This is this pattern of life, death, and resurrection. When Jesus calls us to hate our life, he's calling us to deny ourselves of the pleasures of sin so that we might find true life in him. To deny yourself of sinful pleasures is the very internal conflict that Jesus experienced throughout his life, and when he went through the, to the cross. Suffering and obedience. It is suffering to experience temptation in this world and then to deny it. It is suffering to say, I want this, but God doesn't want this for me. It would be a lie to say, oh, that's easy. We can just follow Jesus. We can obey him. It is an agony At the deepest part of our heart to deny what we want when God says, I don't want this for you. It is suffering to say, God, not about what I want, but what you want for me. That's how I will live. And so we live in this internal conflict constantly of suffering to deny ourselves of the sin that we want and walking in faithfulness to what God has called us to If anyone has ever told you that following Jesus would be easy, they were misleading you. (laughs) They were lying to you. Maybe they didn't understand what it looks like to deny themselves. To hate your life, as Jesus says here, is to stop living your life as if the purpose of your life was for your own personal comfort as the main focus of your life. What you want, what you deserve, what makes you happy, what you feel entitled to. Another great story uh, in uh, the culture of America is of mice and men. Maybe you've read it, read the book, watched the movies. Uh, Lenny was the brother of one of the main characters. He's a gentle man. He had become mentally disabled uh, through a traumatic brain injury, and this cause of this injury caused uh, incredible impairment to his control and judgment cognitively in his life. And he loved bunnies, and. If you know the story, uh, you know how it goes. He likes bunnies so much. He loved to grab them and pet them and cuddle with them. And he loved them so much. He wanted to be them to be happy. He loved them so much that they would crush under his strength. And any time he would hold a bunny, it would basically end in their death. And the very things he loved, he lost because he held onto so tightly. And and, and this this reminds me of. What thing, how it can happen in our own life. The things that we love so much, we hold onto so tightly. If we love our agenda for our life at the expense of God's agenda for our life, we will lose everything because the lust for our own happiness will suffocate our lives. Wanting our life the way we want it at the expense of how God wants it, it will, we will lose it because it will suffocate under our own pride. It will suffocate But if we replace our love for self with a love for God, we gain it. And not just for this life, but for life forever, for life eternal. Hating this life alone is insufficient for lasting joy. You can't just say, okay, I'm just going to deny myself. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to deny myself. We need to replace that denial of self with a love for God. And this is exactly what it means to exalt Jesus in our life. This is exactly what it means to glorify him in our life is to replace a lust for self with a love for him. In the beginning of this passage, some people came to meet Jesus. That's how it started. Some people came from this area. The Greeks came and Jesus said, in essence, if you want to follow me, you must understand the paradox of life. You must understand this paradox in life. And do you know what the paradox is? In order to live, you must die. If you love your life, you have to lose it. And if you lose, lose your life, you'll gain it. A follower of Christ must see things in this way. When Christ calls us to give up trusting in something, he's always replacing it with something else. He's always replacing it with himself. When he calls us to hate our life, he's actually calling us to glory. Glory. He's saying, don't see this this surrender of yourself as purely just a pain in life. See it as a doorway into glory. See it as a doorway into joy in this life and forever. Christ is calling you to glory, to something better, to something brighter, something more significant. He never asks you, to give up something that is important to yourself just for the sake of giving it up. He always asks you to release your grip on that thing, always so that he can put himself in its place. And it's there you will find the joy that you're looking for. And in verse 32, he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. My glory, him denying himself of his desires and being exalted on the cross is not only a doorway into his own joy, but ours as well. And when I'm glorified, when I'm lifted up, I will call you to myself. He opens a way for us. He opens heaven for us. He sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And it is here, it is from here, that he pours out his grace on his people. It is here he speaks to us through his word. It is is from here he sends the Holy Spirit to come into our lives, to give us discernment and wisdom, to empower us to say no to sin and yes to him. Here's a visual and a real way that the humiliation of Christ is also glorifying to him. As he's lifted up, we see him high above the crowds and the crowds are looking at him. He's dying And they mock him and saying, what a failure of a life. You had a horrible life of poverty and suffering and now it ends like this. What a shame. The only appropriate response is to recognize that, that we deserve to be him in his place. We deserve to be the one. As the crowds are looking up on the cross and seeing him dead, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, they don't know that they're the ones that deserve to be here, but I'm the one dying in their place. His death on the cross for your sins was a plan made in heaven before you were born. Before you were born. And Christ wrestled with this tension. He wrestled with this tension of the pain and suffering that it would be for him for for his whole life and then his ending in such agony. And he wrestles with the tension, and we need to wrestle with it as well. We need to wrestle with that tension of what it means to deny ourselves of the things that we want at the expense of following him. We need to wrestle with what he calls us to. We need to wrestle with his promise of what he says. That He says, when I'm lifted up, so will you be as well. If you serve me, the Father will serve you. He will honor you. Look at the verse 28 again. Jesus, after wrestling with the horror of death and desire to be obedient to God, he says, Father, glorify your name. Father, it is time. God's voice beams down from heaven with a tender and loving response. Tender, loving, but also with great weight and power. He says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The father's response is, I have not failed you. I will not fail you. In your most troubling hour in your entire existence even though you knew this was the right thing to do it is still the hard thing to do it is here you have his assurance and affirmation I will not fail you I will prove faithful I will prove sufficient I will prove trustworthy in your most terrifying hour your torture and your death I will not fail you Blessing always comes after obedience. Blessing always comes after obedience. We need to get on that other side of that temptation to be able to say, God, here is what I want, but here is what I choose. I choose you. I choose to follow you. And it is there the peace comes in. If we just wait to obey until we get peace, we may never obey. It is here that Jesus obeys And this is where the thundering love of God is spoken to him again. You were created for this. You were created to follow Jesus. You were created to deny yourself. You were created to pick up your cross every day and follow him, to look at the cross and to see not failure, but glory. You were meant to wrestle. You were created to wrestle in this, but to always see in all things and in every way, it is not on your strength that you wrestle, but the strength and promise of God to exalt Him in your life, to rest in Him, to enjoy His honor, to enjoy His glory, and to know that He will never fail you. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.